welcome everyone. Thank you for joining us. Uh, if you're doing this uh, for a uh, second or third time, welcome again and first time. Thank you. And uh, I'm thrilled to have Ron join us uh, today. Ron, you know, has been doing this for a long time, been in the technology industry. You know, he, uh, you know, was started his career at Sony. We'll talk a little bit about that. He spent a bunch of time in Japan. Uh, you know, he was at SAP for a long time, a startup called Hyperion, which was acquired by Oracle, but then joined NetSuite, uh, grew into being the CFO of NetSuite. He was uh, CFO for, for quite a while until he stepped aside recently to, uh, you know, take on board roles and become a, uh, an investor. And uh, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to learning about uh, that journey. So thank you so much, Ron, Ron, for joining us. Happy to be here. Awesome. That's great. Let's that, just jump right here. Let me start by asking you, you know, you made this interesting career choice of going and uh, uh, living and working in <clears throat> Japan for a long time. So tell us about that. Like, wh why do you feel uh, that was, uh, uh, you know, an interesting thing to do? Right. Yeah, that is unusual. The and, and some people have probably heard this story before, but it's, you know, so I, I grew up in a really small town in South Texas, very long way from here in, in a lot of ways. And I went to college near there as well. So when I graduated from college, I was still very close to home in this in this very small world. But when I graduated from college, um, everybody thought Japan was going to take over the world. It, you know, the, the, our trade deficit with Japan had sort of quintupled in the last couple of years and, and, and the yen had run up and, and Japan was really, and Japanese businesses were doing very well. Japan looked like it was going to be very dominant. I think it's, it's probably difficult for people today to imagine how fearful everyone was of Japan's dominance at the time. It wasn't, it wasn't something like the way we look at China today, that it's a, you know, an economic rival in a lot of ways. It was when I graduated from college, the New York Times ran, a, ran an article, which I still have, that listed the top 10 banks in the world by assets. And 10 of 10 of the largest banks in the world were Japanese. The, 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 the Chiba Farmers Bank in the, you know, some small region of Japan was bigger than Citibank by, by assets. And so, you know, I was coming from a, 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 a small town and I had, a, you know, I had a degree in finance and I was like, well, crap, it seems like I'd probably better learn me some Japanese. So I, I managed to get myself to Japan. I went to, um, I, I studied in, in college there in grad school there. And then I did an internship uh, at Sony kind of out in a factory in the, in the middle of nowhere in an inter international marketing department for like studio television cameras. And that was really the beginning of it. And then I, I, I came back, I went to work for Sony in, in New York City for a few years in the, in the treasury department there. And then they sent me back to headquarters. So I ended up working for them uh, in Japan for a while. And then I, and then eventually I moved to SAP in Japan. And so I spent a few more years in, in Japan with SAP, but that's, uh, that, that's how it, that's, that's how it, it, it all started. And, it, you know, it all made perfect sense at the time. Uh, as it happens, that's, that's ultimately not the way the, the world rotated. Um, but I had a, you know, I had a, had a great time doing it. I learned a ton um, spending, I guess, sort of the first eight-ish, nine years of my career in Japan, yeah. Got it. And so obviously that was during the 90s, the dot-com boom was happening out here in Silicon Valley. Yeah. And obviously you came back and then you were a part of some very consequential companies uh, down the line. But looking back, do you feel, uh, uh, you know, you missed out on maybe being a part of that? Would you have changed anything looking back now? Or do you think that that was still a still form formative uh, part of your uh, growth as ultimately? Yeah, it, it is a great question. And I will tell you, I, I did feel such um, 15 years ago or, or, or 20 years ago. And so when I, you know, I spent the first uh, decade of my career, either in New York or, or, or Japan. And I only finally came back to the States because my wife decided to go to law school at, at UT. And so I had to, uh, eventually she had, she'd kind of followed me all over the place. So I kind of, uh, eventually needed to, to move back to Austin if I wanted to live in the same town as, as my wife. And, uh, and so that's when I, that's when I went to Dell and, and I was at Dell, I was only at Dell about a year before leaving to come out here to start a startup. 
and that's really when it when it struck me. I I came so so there, there's so many uh, uh, bad decisions here. So I came to start a startup in Silicon Valley. Literally the first time I'd ever been to Silicon Valley, the first time I'd ever you know been down 101 in my life was when I arrived here to 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 start a startup, and I had zero network. And I don't mean like I only knew like one guy from college or something. I didn't know any, I'd never been here before. I didn't know anybody. I'd spent the first, you know, 10 years overseas and, and I'd grown up nowhere near here. I didn't go to college uh, around here. And so, yeah, there was a period where I was like, I, I really was, was wishing that I had had a more traditional, you know, sort of start to my career. Um, and there, and, 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 you know, I, I came out, did this startup. It was, and I, oh, oh, by the way, I started, we did the startup in 2000. So just as the dot-com bubble was, was bursting and everything was falling apart, you know, I was, I was out here uh, uh, trying to start a new company and, and, and of course, then ended up with all Japanese backers uh, because it was so difficult to raise money here and, and I just come from Japan. And so I had a lot of connections there. So ended up raising all the money in Japan, had an all Japanese speaking board of directors, board meetings in Japanese. Um, and so I still wasn't, even though I was now here, I still was practically in Japan um, and spent and spent the next few years there. And even from there, um, after after we after we uh, IPO'd that company and, and, I, and I, I left the company a little later and was kind of trying to take a year off, I ended up getting recruited back to SAP. And then spent the next uh, three, four years at SAP, and I will tell you, by the end of that period, that's when I, I, it, I, I realized I'd spent, you know, I'd spent a, almost a decade in Japan. Then I was here with an all Japanese-backed uh, startup, and then I was working for a German company. So even though I was here, I was really not developing network here. I didn't have a, a lot of connections here, and I did finally make a decision. That said, you know, I gotta, I gotta get to a company based in Silicon Valley. If I'm gonna make my career here, and I'm gonna build some network here, and actually be successful here, I'll, uh, I'll move uh, to a company that's actually based here. But that was Hyperion, you know. So that, that was to, you know, I'm, I'm 15 years into my career before I ever worked at a, at a U.S.-based company, basically. Um, so it's very late. Today, today's great. Today I've got a lot of network. Um, but a very late uh, start. It can so it can be done if you're if you're from far away. But um, but yeah, there were definitely times when I thought it would have made more sense to to uh, you know to 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 go to school here, to start a first job here. Um, it would the the path would it worked out in the end. I can't can't complain, but it was unusual. It did, didn't it? But but the speaking of which, the pendulum seems to be swinging, especially if you look back over the last twelve to eighteen months. And if you were to be advising, you know, maybe folks on the on the uh, uh, webinar today, or uh, you know, other up and coming finance leaders, would you say how much? To what extent would you say that Silicon Valley is still that center of the universe in terms of, especially in the technology ecosystem? You know, we live in a world where you can hire people anywhere, and and you know, we've gotten used to it, especially over the last twelve months, right? And so. Uh, what are your thoughts on the importance of maybe being here and, and building a network here to go build a successful career or maybe one day go be a CFO? Do you think those opportunities have suddenly opened up where boards or, or other uh, you know, investors and the other kind of influential folks in, in companies have opened up their uh, minds in terms of bringing on CFOs and VPs of finance and other uh, roles outside of the Bay Area more often? And, and what are your thoughts on that? I, I, there's no question that it's moving in that direction. I do think the jury's still out a little bit. So there's the, it, you know, you only have to go back a year to where everything was, was very much uh, Silicon Valley based. And now I think it's a little difficult from the middle of the pandemic to tell what the other side of the pandemic is going to look like. There's no, there's no question that it's accelerated trends for distributed workforce, which is fantastic. Um, because I think there's a lot of talent in the middle of the country that that was harder to access, and I think the more we can re recruit in that way, fantastic. But I don't know um, how it ultimately settles out, and what the ben you know, um, so, and, and some of this is probably just a, just a, just old guy or pre-pandemic 
thinking, I very much like managing by walking around. I very much like the informal, unscheduled meetings that happen when I'm at the same physical workplace as other people. Of course, both with my own team, because they can walk in and out of my office and I can walk and sit down uh, next to them and, and, and talk through stuff. But also because I spent a lot of, whether it was at Hyperion or, or NetSuite or at SAP, I spent a lot of my time wandering over and sitting in the office of the guy who's the head of product or or just moving up to the sales floor and sitting in the middle of the sales floor for the last several days of the quarter or and and this this it's not just physical um proximity but the ability to have these informal not structured we didn't schedule a meeting today at 10 o'clock to jump on a zoom and talk yes you can do that and it, zoom works fantastic um but there's so much unstructured communication, unstructured learning, unstructured connection building that happens. Um, and I don't yet see how that gets facilitated um, as much in this distributed environment. So I don't, I think the jury's still out a little bit. It's definitely easier today to start a company and find funding in Austin, Texas or Salt Lake City than it, than it was, right? Um, it's still easier here than it is in either of those two places. Got it. Got it. And changing directions a little bit, you know, one of the classic things that as people are working their way up, up to that CFO role, the, of all the people I've, I've spoken with, like, there have been so many backgrounds, right? And, and uh, folks who, you know, studied uh, operations research, folks who, you know, studied mechanical engineering and all kinds of people who end up in, in that CFO role. But, but the classic paths end up being, you, you either come from that, audit background, big four, you studied accounting control, that kind of uh, background. But on the other hand, you could be strategic finance and uh, investment banking or, or more of a strategic finance and planning uh, kind of background. Uh, you know, while your title at, at SAP at one point was chief controller, I, I remember you telling me that uh, SAP did things a little differently, even though the title said controller, it was more of a strategic uh, finance kind of a role. Uh, what are your thoughts on, you know, uh, what kind of a background helps uh, people get to that role of a CFO? It, does one or the other open up more opportunities? And in your case, did having that strategic finance, maybe background, make it easier for you to get that uh, uh, opportunity to go be the CFO of NetSuite? Like, what are some of your learnings there? Yeah, yeah. Let me. I'll, I'll answer the, that. Maybe the two parts. So the yeah, the con controller at SAP, and it's it's probably controller at a at a German company is a little is different. It's uh, it's not what we really think of as a as a controller, like the head of the accounting function controller in the states, um, and a and a chief controller. This odd title at at SAP is more like a divisional CFO, um, and so it's like it's a, and so my my last role at SAP, I was chief controller for the for the development function, the product function which was, I don't know, 10,000 employees at the time. So it was a little bit like being CFO of a 10,000-person company, but it was only one function, strong shared service uh, center to it. So not really. Um, it, it, so it was a great experience, certainly a great experience at scale and big organization and, and, and large dollar figures. Um, but to get to your, to your specific question about what type of background really works and we and you're right we have people now come directly in from banking directly in from audit or from someplace completely different and you know i'll say one of the things uh, personally one of the things i really like about the role that i enjoy like day to day in the role uh, of being a cfo is how multivariate it is i like to go from an argument with the auditors over accounting policy to an investor meeting to heads down in an Excel sheet for some analysis to a presentation to the board to another thing to another thing to another thing that are very different. These are very different disciplines and very different skills. Uh, and I really enjoy that movement between all these different functions. And I'll you know, my, my house, other than this room right now, my house is under construction right now. And it's, uh, and it's, a, it's a huge mess and maybe we'll hear some, some noise, but I've got, you know, so we have a, I have a general contractor here and he, he trained up in all the trades. And so he's, he's, a, he's a, he's a plumber, he's a carpenter, he's an electrician, he's 
can Angshi Rocky can Mud and Tape. He can do all of them. At any given point, he is. There's no question. He's not the best carpenter in the building. He's not the best plumber in the building. He's the guy who can manage all of these functions together toward a common goal. And the place that I would get, if I'm looking to to bring someone in as a CFO, I do get a little concerned if we're if we've got somebody who has been a plumber all their life and has literally never seen any of the other trades, and now we're going to make them general contractor. Um, and so I, one thing you'll hear, you'll hear me say over and over is I really like breadth in, in somebody who's, who's rising up. And the thing that I think you should really be spending your career doing as you want to move up is breadth. You can, you can, and, 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 and breadth may be, may mean a series of, of, of small depths. You may be, maybe you're a, you know, a rhetoric accountant for two years and you get super great at that. And then you move on and, and do something different. But, you know, 25 years as a RevRec accountant is not going to prepare you to be a CFO. Um, and so the thing I really encourage people is to, is to move around and get a lot of the different functions, get some exposure, at least to a lot of the different. And that means both a lot of the different functions in the inside of finance, whether that's a accounting or certain types of accounting, and then some FP&A function and some treasury functions and tax all of those things, but also if you can spend some time embedded with sales for a few years and spend some time embedded with product for a few years, you're you're going to be much better at this. Got it. And over the course of your career, right, did you intentionally pursue those different opportunities in these different areas across the Sony and SAP and all these companies? I think um, to, to some extent. Um, and and there's a big uh, there's a big dumb luck uh, component to it as well. And so I will say that like from 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 every every job I had, I was definitely learning something. In the same way that I think you can learn something from any individual. Almost every individual knows a bunch of stuff that you don't know. Uh, of course, occasionally an individual is a jerk, and maybe you learn how not to be. Um, but I think you can learn something from everybody, and it's the same way from every job. So my, you know, so my if my first job was at Sony, that 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 job was all about structured finance. The company had just finished buying uh, Columbia Records, and after that, they bought Columbia Pictures. They'd blown their balance sheet up, and we spent several years just trying to move assets off the balance sheet. So I did. Uh, a bunch of sale leaseback. We did uh, structured commercial payment. Actually, a bunch of things that are not allowed under uh, under 2021 accounting were allowed under 1991 accounting. Um, and so I spent a ton of time with accountants trying to get uh, deals structured so they would meet the accounting rules. With bankers trying to get deals structured that way. And I learned a, a, you know a ton about structured finance. Of course, at the same time, it was a multinational, multicultural company, and I, and I had to go work in headquarters. I think it's, it's not that I think everybody must work overseas. It's really useful to work in an environment where there is no question about who needs to adapt here. If, if I move to Japan and, it, and the culture is different than the culture I'm used to, there's no question that Japan's not going to adapt to me. I need to figure out my way to work in this culture, and that, and, and the ability to to, to flex uh, as you, as you move through an organization is very important. Even inside a company, there is no company where the sales team and the and the guys writing code have the same culture. You don't want the same culture in these two organizations, and so the ability to flex culture-wise is important. Um, but at the same time, Sony was a huge company. This is a couple of hundred thousand employee company at the time, and it was very slow. And that's a, a very slow to move on anything. And that was a, that was the the negative takeaway that I learned um, to try to avoid. And and as I you know got hired in an organization to try to not to design in was this was the slow pace. So that's Sony. I moved from Sony to, to SAP. It was my first uh, enterprise software company. So that's where I learn about enterprise software. I also got to see a bit more of Asia because we were Japan, Korea, Taiwan. Um, it, so uh, SAP is really the place where I first really learned the FP&A function, just the, just the basics, just the budgeting, the reporting, the metrics of FP&A. Um, I, really, 
I really learned there. And also they did, they were very proactive about process re-engineering, um, designing, designing processes to work. So I learned that there, then I, then I went to Dell. Dell is a completely different business. Dell is a, uh, so this was Dell home. So like if you or I were to buy a PC, so this is a $3 billion business being done with $2,500 one-off transactions. And so it's this super high-speed transactional business. And that was a great place to learn not, not only about, about how to design effective, effective metrics for a business, um, but you could, so this is, we're in, we're in battle with Compaq and Gateway at the time, if anybody remembers those two PC makers. Um, and we literally have readers above our desk about what is happening on the sales floor because every, it's, it's in, you know, it's just thousands of units per hour going through here. And you could literally look at your metrics make a change and set your watch and 30 minutes later, go see if your change was effective or not. And so a completely different discipline and, and, and really, you know, great, great to learn there. And then I, you know, and then I do the startup and make like every mistake known to man. And then, and then I'm back at SAP for a while, more enterprise software, also reminded about what it's like to work at a very large organization and that maybe that's not for me. And then I moved to, then I moved to NetSuite and, 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 and really learned. Uh, uh, SAS for the first time. Oh, I, I think I skipped Hyperion in there. I learned a, I learned a ton from from Robin Washington there, there as well. But every single job, I was learning something. Every single job is preparing me ultimately to be CFO. And honestly, when they when they weren't anymore, um, then then I then I didn't stay. Uh, if I if if I couldn't if I wasn't still learning if I, you know if 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 if, if, if I'm given something to do and, and sort of settle into it and it's running and it works, I'm, I'm pretty ready to hand that off to somebody else and go and go do something else. Right. And as you were going through that journey, you, you talked about the breadth, right? And one of the things people struggle with is, you know, sometimes when you are trying to move outside of your lane and then you have to start over in, you know, in effect to yeah. learn something, right? I want to, I, you know, I'm in this accounting track. I want to go to FPNA, right? But I've never done FPNA. So, it almost seems like you have to take a step back in your career to then take two steps forward uh, a few years down the line, right? And so did you have to make those kinds of trade-offs along the way where you had to give up maybe title or compensation or something like that? And, and what's your general approach to, to, to uh, that? And how do you recommend people think about that? Yeah, I, I, I did have to do that. And um you know, I mean, and, 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 and also, I mean, like I, I mentioned moving from Japan to, to Austin, Texas, um, uh, as my, as my wife was in, was in law school there. And that was, that was very much a, I mean, there's no question I had, I had significantly smaller span of control at Dell, big, big company, but significantly smaller, uh, span of control. I had the challenge also of looking, looking for a job in Austin, Texas with, uh, you know, 19, 1990s internet, um, from Japan. So that was fun. But, but so that was, uh, so significantly smaller span of control. I still learned a lot. You know, I got, I got paid less also, uh, but I, but I learned a significant amount in that job. Um, I didn't stay in that job very, I was only at the at Dell for a year before leaving to, to do the startup, but, um, but I learned a ton and I'm still, so Mark Hawkins was my, was my boss at, at Dell and I'm still, we're, we're still close. I still talk to him at least a couple of times a year about something or other we our paths cross um so yeah absolutely even when i came to you know when i came to netsuite i was a i was a, a vice president at uh hyperion which was a much bigger you know hyperion is a uh it was just uh had just been sold to to oracle for three-ish billion bucks and i went to netsuite and netsuite you know had just finished a 60 million dollar year they were that scale company and, uh, and, you know, if I'd had a lot of ego, I would have said, well, I'm, big, I'm a VP of a bigger company. I should be an SVP or something. Um, but I was, I was fascinated with the, with the industry, with, with, I don't even know if we called it SaaS at the time, but with a, with a cloud architecture versus a client server architecture, uh, which is what kind of the way the world had been turning when I joined SAP was from mainframe to, to client server. Now it seemed to me that it might turn from from client server to SaaS. I was fascinated by this opportunity, knew I could learn a lot, and so and so the same. So I so I came in um, 
even uh, uh, believe me, we had the discussion about why I thought I should be an SVP, um, but uh, but they weren't going to offer me SVP. They were going to offer me VP. And to me, the, the opportunity outweighed uh, ego or outweighed title. And uh, and yeah, and, and obviously that, that 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 worked out. So yes, um, to me, it's it's more about the opportunity first, about what I'm going to learn and where the job and where the company might go um, and, and probably a little bit less about whether this is a lateral move or, or, or a move up. They're not all moves up, no question. Great. And, and so as you joined, you took this VP role. I, if I'm not mistaken, you they made you an SVP, eventually they made you a CFO, right? And so, yeah. but then, you know, first time true CFO of public company, tell us about maybe, you know, some of the mistakes you made as a first time CFO and what are some of those lessons learned? Like, what do you tell other first time CFOs now? You know, what would your advice be uh, to them and, and things that they can avoid? Right. So we, we, I mean, remember the first time I was CFO was at the startup and there I just you named the mistake. I made it um, and I didn't, and, and, and as, as I talked about before, one of the reasons I made every mistake at that, at that possible at that time was because I didn't know, I had nobody to turn to. I didn't know, I had zero network. I mean, I, I could call somebody in Japan, but I really didn't, about the most basic things, I didn't, I didn't know uh, and I didn't know who might know. So that was the chance. But so first public company role, I was, you know, I was really lucky at NetSuite that I was very much eased into it. So I was in charge, I had the, the accounting, FP&A, tax functions uh, for, for a couple of years before becoming uh, CFO. And the, uh, and the big change for me in becoming CFO, I had a relationship with the board, but obviously you're in front of the board more when you're CFO. The big, the big, big change was, um, was IR. I didn't have investor relations. I'd honestly never, um, never other than the IPO, had not really seen us do uh, investor presentations. And so I did a, I did, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a plotter and a planner and I, over prepare for 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 most things, um, and I worry and, uh, and and prepare a lot. Um, and so I made this. We made this plan, the six month plan, where I'll follow the CEO and the CFO around as they do investor presentations. And by the time I take it over, I'll be able to just I'll say what they were saying, right? And so uh, we we kick off this plan. Uh, this is this is a couple of months before I'm supposed to take over CFO. I go to the first conference um, there, and the CFO, uh, you know, my boss is CFO is supposed to come there, and he's gonna he's gonna present, and I'll I'll just soak it all up, right? So he he calls me like five minutes before he's supposed to be there, and says he's not gonna make it. And <laughs> so so I had to, and to this day I don't know I don't know whether he did that by design for just a trial by fire for me, uh, which is a little bit a little bit high risk, uh, or whether he literally was just was late and was just either either one is possible but anyway so we, it was probably good because i would have prepared like mad and worried and and and, and tried to think of, of everything and as it was i didn't i just had to get up there and and, and wing it uh and so and it and, and, and it worked out okay they, and they were they were nice to me because i knew i was winging it i think um so that was so so for me that part was a was a fairly easy transition with the exception of that one day which uh, which was very uh, very sweat inducing but but other than that it was a, it was a pretty smooth transition and I think I was you know I've certainly made lots of mistakes along the way but I was I was fortunate enough not to make any you know fatal ones as a as a public company CFO and look now you're a board member right? you sit on all these boards yeah. as a CFO you you're working with the board you're kind of answerable to the board and and uh, you are judged by the board uh and all of that right but now you're on the other side right and and how do you think uh, you know has, has your perspective changed about the role of the cfo and what you expect of a cfo uh and as you wear that board member hat yeah it it, it has and i mean I, I so i i joined the first board that i joined which was hyperion I mean, pardon me, which was HubSpot, uh, while I was still a sitting CFO. And so you like to think that my, you know, I, uh, hopefully informed by the, the interaction that I'd had with my, with my own boards in the past, um, that helped 
make me uh, a more helpful uh, board member to that company. And at the same time, I think being a board member probably helped make me a little more sympathetic CFO in terms of the way I, I, I provide information to the to the board. You know, it's now I'm I've been on whatever five boards in the last two years, and you know every and those and by every one of those is a SaaS company, and, and they all have whatever a churn number. No two of them have the same definition of the churn number, but they all they all have a number. And the same with uh, you know with a net retention number or, or whatever. And so I think I I got a little more sympathetic to to a board stepping into a quarterly meeting that may have just come from a different quarterly meeting with a different set of metrics. I got a little more sympathetic to that uh, to that angle. I think the other thing that being a, a, a CFO really helped me um, to understand as a board member is to make sure that you focus on what's important and, and not necessarily to what's on the slide. And I'll give you the, uh, you know, the example in SAS, um, which, is, which is kind of silly and we, we probably mature beyond it eventually, but is that I could come into my board uh, and say, Oh well, you know, the end of the quarter, and it was all pretty good. You know, we we guided uh, revenue of 100, and it's going to be 102, and we guided cash flow of 20, and it's going to be 25, and we're going to beat EPS, and yeah, it was all fantastic. And uh, and the board's like, oh, it's great, everything's great, it's wonderful. And the thing is, none of the in terms of actually running a, the business, those a SaaS business. Those are like really not relevant metrics. Those are it was a it was Graham Smith at, uh, at Salesforce who, who I think coined the revenue in a SaaS company is like the light from a distant star. And those metrics are like the light from a distant star. They they came from something that happened a long time ago. And what's what's relevant for running the business is well, what were bookings this quarter. Um, and and. And so I think one of the things, you know, really being inside the business can help you help you being outside the business is not to be. And it's not it's not that, um, and you know, it's not that anybody's trying to deceive anybody. It is true. The, 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 the metrics that we guided to, we beat them all. We never in 10 years that I was at NetSuite, we didn't miss. We never missed a guided metric. Um, that doesn't mean that every quarter was fantastic, though. And, and so there's a layer underneath what's being presented. I think um, it's important that the board member has their eyes on that and not just on what's on the slides. Um, and so I think that's that's probably something that I learned. Got it, that's great. So uh, yeah, changing directions a little bit to uh, you know mentorship and management. Um, you, you talked about how, especially once you moved to the U.S., you didn't really have a network, you didn't have anybody, but that's right. something you have to work at and, and build those relationships. But then how uh, important a role do you think mentors played? You talked about you know, Mark Hawkins and, and Robin Washington. And, yeah. and, and were there mentors that you sought out and, and as you were going through you know, your journey towards that CFO role? And, and uh, you know, if mentors were important, how did you find them? How did you kind of build those yeah. relationships, maintain those relationships? You said you're a planner, right? So were you deliberate about it? Were you like, no, I have to go lunch every month with, with a mentor of mine? And, and or was that again, luck and, and serendipity? And, and uh, it's always right. good to hear about all the different ways in which people experience yeah. people on their journeys, right? Yeah, I so uh, honestly, I have never had a formal mentor. I've never had somebody that we had a mentor mentee relationship and it was, I reached out to them and asked them to be a mentor. I've never, I've never had that, but that said, you know, I mentioned having learned something in every job and I've definitely learned something. Um, not just from everybody I've worked for, but uh, honestly from a lot of people who worked for me as well. So yeah, I did, you know, um, Hawkins, it was this, this this transactional business and 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 the way we sort of used metrics and you could see the effect of the metrics was was just fantastic there. Robin, Robin, so it's it's so interesting because you've had because you've had Mark Hawkins on, you've had Robin Washington on, um, both of who were were my boss at some point. You've had Kate Kate Booker on, who is a CFO at at HubSpot, uh, or I'm on the board. Um, Rob, but but Rob, so Robin was the first person. 
I, I was going to say she was the first person I ever worked for who who did this. It might just be the first place that I was uh, uh, clever enough to grok it. But she was the first person I worked for who really was deliberate about managing her organization, not just the individuals, but do I have the right person in the right slot? Am I developing each of the individuals? She was very deliberate, very thoughtful about this in a way I hadn't seen before. And she, you know, she was she was good at something that I uh, I'm not sure I ever got good at. And that is she, you know, for me, it's always like the, the, the terrible employee is a fairly obvious solution. The fantastic employee is fantastic. The B plus employee is the is the challenge. Um in trying to coach them to to an A or, or decide the different position for them, and she was very proactive about managing her organization in this way. And I learned we you know we only worked together about a year. We got acquired by by Oracle, um, but I learned a ton from her. I also learned, you know, it's it, it's funny when we think of a mentor, somebody I would definitely call a mentor. And this is the dumb luck category. My first job at SAP in Japan, I happened to sit at my desk next to. Uh, to another guy, his name is Mark Diner. I learned a ton from this guy. Not for not just about. I'm sure I was a total pain in the ass, uh, but I, I learned a ton from him. Not just about the way SAP worked, but the, but the but the way the company thought, how to do specific things in the systems. I learned a ton from from this guy, and this he's one of my best friends in the world to this day. Um, you know, twenty twenty some odd years later. But uh, was a huge was a huge teacher for me, and I'll uh, you know, and I'll also say, you know, maybe two 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 other vectors of this. One is, I also I also learned, and here's where I I would say try to be deliberate. Um, I learned a ton from uh, John Temple, who was head of sales at Hyperion. I learned a ton from the sales team at uh, at Netsuite. Um, I was fortunate to be in this position at SAP for several years where I was um, the controller for the product development team. I learned a ton about product management and, and uh, solution mapping from that team. And so to, that definitely helped to be to have, have, have learned from those other cultures inside the, inside the company. Super helpful. And the last, the last thing I'll say that I mentioned before is I learned a great deal from the people who worked for me as well. And you, you know, there's this, you go through this, this transition as a manager and first you, you get really good at something. Maybe you're a great uh, analyst in the FPNA team, and then you end up as head of FPNA. And this is a, this is a player coach role. You know how to do the job. Everybody who's working for you is doing, you can coach them to doing it better. You can manage the function. Eventually in your career, you're going to get to, um, managing, you know, uh, it, when, when, when I'm managing the head of international tax, there's, there's no question. There's a, there's a massive disparity between the two of us about, uh, about knowledge in, in this area. I know, I know perhaps enough to, to understand what he or she is saying, but not, but not much more. Um, and so you, you move into to managing these functions that you're not the expert at. And, you know, I learned a ton from my, uh, Mike Foreman, who was a controller at, at NetSuite, about scaling that function and about how that, that function should work. And I was lucky. I was very, Mike was there when I got there. I was very lucky to have a guy who had all the, you know, super high integrity, zero tolerance for, um, for, for error, uh, zero tolerance for anything misleading. And I was able to just, to just learn from him. So, you know, very fortunate. I learned a lot actually from Eileen Tobias as well, who was there and had to figure out a bunch of SaaS metrics before, you know, before their, you know, before every VC firm had 50 SaaS companies in their portfolio, and we were trying to figure out how to how to measure these things. Uh, I learned a ton from her as well. So, never had a really a formal um, mentoring relationship, but I've learned a, a, a ton from everybody I've worked with. Got it. And, and speaking of uh, building those teams, working with all these smart people, did managing them, leading them just come naturally to you? Uh, or that's something you had to kind of work at? No. 
Um, no, it doesn't. I'm, I, look, I'm a, a natural introvert. Um, I'm a much more of an individual player than a, than a team sport kind of person. And so, it, no, it doesn't come natural to me. Um, and like I said, I think you, you do this evolution. The first stage is, is, is pretty easy. The, the going from individual to sort of player coach is, 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 is pretty easy. I manage people who do things I know how to do. Um, and then there's a, just another step when you've got to manage people who, um, who, you know, I, if I, if it's, you know, it's, it's like I, I use the tax example, you could say, you know, SEC reporting or any other really specialized area. Um, now you've got to manage people who um, are are certainly better at you than the thing, um, and that's a, and, a, and that's a different step. Um, like I said, I learned a lot from Robin, and I think I you know I got better at it. I don't know if I ever got good at it. Certainly not as good as I I would like to be. Um, and I think I also. I also learned actually from a from a couple of HR people that I worked with about uh, about uh, how to get better at that. And we, you know, I've had a lot of uh, lots of 360 feedback, trying to listen and get better and uh, and, and do all those things. But no, it doesn't. It, it, it's not natural. It doesn't come naturally uh, for me. And um, and it was it was one of those things that like oh, you're always trying to do better at it. And always, well, like like so many things in life, it's like trying to do do better at it, trying to do better at a bunch of things at the same time, never feeling like I'm spending as much time on it as I should. So no, I'm I'm sure the tables have been turned a bit, right? Where you are in the position where you can mentor and advise yeah. and work with the folks uh, coming up behind you. But as you're on these boards or you're advising other companies, and um, you know, folk, the folks who aren't at the CFO level who are one level lower. What makes you look at them and, and go, okay, this person has the characteristics to go be a CFO one day, right? So if, if you were to kind of pattern match, given everything you've seen so far, what are those qualities that you look at at the second line of leadership uh, at a company where you might also say that, hey, this person might be a good CFO candidate for a different portfolio company or something like that, right? And what, what makes you, what builds that conviction in you that somebody's uh, potentially ready for it? And what are they showing you that builds that conviction? Yeah, I think um, there's, there's, a, there, there, there's a sort of foundation layer that has to be there. And that's the, that's the integrity, um, the, the some history of being able to, to, to manage a function like this with, Consistency and precision, and and of course, integrity. I think, um, and those are you know the nice thing about those is you can often you can read that stuff off of a LinkedIn page uh, or resume. Um, there's a next layer, which would have to do with the with the breadth we've talked about. I I would love to have somebody who's got uh, some you know some familiarity with. With a different area of the company that they've been embedded at least for some time in those different areas, you know, everyone thinks there's a there's a natural tension between finance and sales, and, and there often is. But I don't want this person to be a total stranger in sales land. Um, they need to have some sympathy for what the sales team is trying to achieve and the ability to work with them. Um, it's super important. So that's where we get to the breadth. And the um, and I would say this is also where this sort of mid level of, of of requirements to be good at this is where this breadth comes in. How many different areas inside a company have they spent material time in? How many different types of companies to to you know to move industries is also a uh, 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 requires some, some some mental agility as well. So if they've done that successfully, that's good. And that because that really comes to the to the third thing at the highest level. And the, the sort of softest stuff, it's hardest to get at. Number one is fit. Fit with the CEO is super important. That doesn't mean you're the same as the CEO, but you've got to have a cultural fit. If the, if the, if the CEO is a huge big bet risk taker and the CFO is a super conservative, um, you know, uh, uh, slow grower, it, it, it's just not going to, the, the click is not going to happen. So there's got to be, there's got to be some 
some some click there. I mean, I mentioned the vector of, of, of risk uh, tolerance, but that's not the only vector. So click between the person and the CEO, very important. Um, and 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 the, you know, and the CFO has to recognize also that the CEO is the one who's really going to set the the culture here, and so you got to have enough cultural flexibility to 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 match that, and also to match across the different departments of the company. The second thing I would say is the ability to communicate, and if there, and certainly even at a lower level, if you're the head of FP&A or or you're a level below, the ability to communicate is is important, and it starts to become more important as you move up. Um, when you get to be CFO, I mean, CFO, like, like all jobs, ultimately ends up being a kind of sales job. And the ability to communicate enthusiastically and passionately inside the company and outside the company becomes very important. And you know, there, there are CEOs who, when their CFO gets up to, to do an investor presentation and has to present about the company, the CFO, the CEO is just gritting his teeth as the CFO presents. And this is, this is not the recipe for success. You've got you've to have somebody who's, who's able to communicate internally and externally with passion about the business uh, in, in a way that works. And then the third thing I would say, when this works very well, is... The CFO, and this is probably, well, I was going to say it's especially true, it's probably easier to build at a smaller growing company, but ultimately is, is needed uh, through whatever size company. And that is the CFO has got to completely grok the workings of the company in their heart. They have to really understand how this business works. And I mean, you know, I had I had this uh, even in in the in the in the in the company that I was working with, uh, let's say in in last year's budget cycle, where the CEO they're they're talking about a certain scenario, they're going to grow a certain amount, and the CEO is saying, well, what if what if we were willing to step the burn up by by five million dollars? How much more growth could we get out? And if the answer is, you know, give me two weeks, I'll, I'll take that away. I'll go, we'll go do the model and I'll come back in two weeks. It just, this just doesn't work for iteration purposes. The, 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 the CFO has got to have the working model in some detail of the company inside their head. And they've got to be able to answer that question. Like, look, if we spend another 5 million bucks, I think it's about like this. You know, this would be my gut. Keep in mind, we would also need to fund, we can't just do sales reps. We would also need to fund this, this, and this. The customer support's already pinched and we probably need to step back. We need to do these and things, but I think it probably gives us about this. Give me two hours. And uh, and we'll give you the exact number, but I think it's about like this. Um, they've got to have that working model in their head to be the sounding board that the CEO needs to iterate on on building the business. So those are that's the sort of hierarchy of needs, I think. Um, the the lower hierarchy of needs, the easier it is to test. You can read it off the resume. The higher you get, um, the more it's the it's the very imperfect process, which is which is interviewing people and, and just talking. Yeah, no, that's awesome. That's that's great. Uh, I'm going to remind everybody that please ask your questions for Ron. There's a Q&A button at the bottom of your window. I'm going to come back after a few questions of mine and 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 uh, you know bring up uh, your questions. Now, uh, Ron, let me kind of uh, uh, wrap up uh, uh, last few questions. I, I like to ask folks this because uh, you know, I, I always ask these questions, but the answers are so varied and interesting that I'm, I'm, I'm going to just continue doing it. One of them is about just uh, the role of the finance team in terms of being that keeper of the integrity and the ethics and all of that, right? We've seen so many stories in the last year or two about just crazy stuff happening inside companies, which from the outside, when the stories come out, it seems like, you know, at least uh, a responsible CFO and folks like that uh, should have uh, done something about uh, about that. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on on uh, you know how you approach that and what you think the role of the CFO. Uh, you know, is it always to be that adult in the room who's kind of being a, a good check on uh, uh, bad behavior? And uh, what are some of your lessons learned on that front? Yeah, I I do think it is the role of the CFO maybe just for, for, for want of anybody else to, to do it. It is a role of the CFO to keep the company from fooling itself. And so we, uh, we always, I mean, you, you made a really good point. And we, we always hear about this at the time of IPO. That's when it, you know, that's when 
Groupon has to fundamentally change their RevRec accounting because the SEC filing gets done and everybody sees it. Um, but of course, this is not where the where the problem happens. That just is where the problem gets revealed. And the CFO has really got to keep the company from fooling itself as they go along. So it's not just the danger that you know we do our SEC filing and we have to tweak something in order to continue. It's that we've been operating and building a company, for, and I don't mean to pick on on, on on Groupon, I don't know that much about that particular case, but you've, you, you operate the company every month on a set of metrics and build the company on a set of assumptions. And it's a, it's a CFO's role, I really think, maybe in, in, in two or three ways. I mean, at the, at, the, at the base level, just to make sure that the stuff we're looking at is accurate, of course, is, is important. So we're not fooling ourselves that the number is three when it's really two. That's super important. That second, that of course, that we're looking at the right metrics, that we're not, um, you know, that we don't spend quarter after quarter saying, hey, our, you know, the install base of ARR is up uh, 50% year over year. When, when bookings were up 10% year over year, it'll take that 50% number a couple of years to decay to an alarming level, but the 10% bookings this quarter are the number that's causing it to decay. So pay attention to what you need to pay attention to. So the second thing is, the, so if the first thing is that the metrics are calculated correctly, the second thing is that we're looking at the right metrics to, to, to build the business. CFO is definitely responsible for keeping, keeping us from kidding ourselves in that way. And of course, the extrapolatability of this. Is the thing that we're doing today that's working, how far does that thing go? You know, if we're if we if we had huge improvements year over year because we managed to get, you know, gross retention from 90% to 93%, and that, that drove a huge portion of our growth last year, is it going to go from 93 to 96? Can we do that again or are we out of runway on that one and we need to do something else? Um, so keeping the company honest in that. And then the last thing I'll say is it also the, the, the CFO must have some perspective, hopefully before filing the S1, on how the company will be perceived from the outside, how the story will be perceived, how the metrics will be perceived, how, how different is what we're doing. Of course, we're all different and special, but how different are the metrics that we're using, the business model that we're running? are they from the norm here? What are the parts we're gonna to have to explain? What are the parts we really need a good story for because they're expecting something different than what it's gonna get. Having that outside perspective and, and going and getting it where you don't have, maybe we need to be doing a bunch of investor meetings, a public company investor meetings, you know, a year and a half out from IPO. So I got a better sense of how the story is gonna be received. Um, I think I do think that's the CFO's responsibility for keeping the company kind of honest and realistic with itself in that in that way. Got it. And last question. Now you talked about going through these multiple shifts in business models, mainframe to on-prem, on-prem to cloud. At least when it comes to the tools that a lot of finance folks use, you played a big role yourself in, with NetSuite and the move to uh, the cloud from from in, in, from the perspective of that. Uh, stack uh, and but as you look to the future you know the next 10 years and how the role of the CFO and what they do uh, the tools that they use and all of that has been evolving and changing uh, if you had to maybe provide quick advice on hey here are some of the what I see coming around the corner or if you are up for being the CFO five years 10 years from now this is what I recommend you, you know, learn more about and, and because this is this seems to be where the world is going like what's your uh, feedback on that yeah, maybe a couple that are specifically SaaS-driven, if that's what we're talking about. One is, and probably everybody's aware of this by now, is that in SaaS, uh, the, the CFO is more responsible for how things, at least whether things turn out according to plan or not, than at a traditional organization. So when I, when I was at SAP, every quarter, at the end of the quarter, a dozen deals you know, the, the $30 million deal with Intel or the, the $20 million deal with HP, a dozen of those deals made or broke the quarter. And whether everybody was smiling on the earnings call or everybody was looking at their navel on the earnings call was dependent on whether the sales team sold those dozen deals. Whether we hit the revenue number and the EPS number that we sold the street depended on what the sales team was able to, to achieve in the quarter. Um, 
SaaS company is completely different. The, it's a model-driven uh, business. CFO and team are responsible for that model. If the, you know, I mean, it's 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 routine now. And and again, it, people who, who've kind of grown up in the current generation may not realize how remarkable this is, but it's routine now for for companies to give annual guidance with a half of a percentage range. This was not normal in the past. Um, tolerances have come way down, and that's about the the quality of the of the CFO, obviously it's a whole financial organization, but the quality of the accounting, the quality of the FP18 all comes into this model. The model's gotta be correct. That onus is now on the CFO in a way that it was not in the past. In the past, if I wanna know how the quarter was gonna come out, I just asked the head of sales. Um, now there's just too many parts in the machine and there are increasingly more parts in the machine. As there is more uh, customer self-service in terms of signing up or turning off, as there's as there are more deals that get done because of the way the product is engineered and the and the customer sign up themselves, the model just becomes more and more important. So one more onus on the on the CFO from that point of view. The second thing that it's done, which is great, is there are so many more tools now. You know, if if Salesforce was the company that showed you could sell CRM to, uh, as I always. The Western Divisional Manager of Budget Sales and 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 her team of seven salespeople, um, you know, the, the uh, sort of a generation later in SaaS, you can sell you can sell a SaaS solution to the person in charge, not not the treasurer even, not the head of cash management, but the person who's in charge of dunning. There's a, there's a SaaS solution for that, and so now we've got. It's very common to have you know 50 solutions in scope for for socks, for example, which is in a lot of ways is fantastic. There are point solutions that get all of this stuff done. At the same time, it's complexity to manage, and I almost feel like there's a need for the reemergence of the idea of an architect inside the CFO organization to help decide what is going to get done where. Because I've seen too many cases now where somebody's running you know, 25 systems, each of one does a fantastic thing in a fantastic way um, and optimizes its user. And then we'll say like, okay, and now, you know, we also need to do X. And we actually have a system that does X super well, but we've architected our system in such a way that that system actually doesn't have the data that it needs to do X because we use these three other systems. And so now I'm adding another system. We need to get to probably need to get a place of slightly more deliberate design here rather than just organic growth and in, inside the inside the organization. So those are those are both, um, I think, kind of SaaS driven uh, phenomenon that affect that affect the CFO's role. Awesome. So before I jump into a few of the questions that have come in, I'm going to quickly ask Laura to maybe put up the the question that we're going to ask. Hey, if you want to learn more about Airbase, we're a you know, spend management platform. We help with what Ron was just talking about in terms of not having 50 different applications and in terms of consolidating yeah. a whole bunch of those tools. And if you are, just let us know and, and we'll be happy to reach out and, and talk to you. But quickly, uh, Ron, jumping uh, to the uh, questions that I've seen uh, uh, coming in. One is about you being an introvert. It looks like, you know, there, there are other introverts out there and, and what, yeah. what are some of the challenges you faced uh, and how did you kind of, overcome them uh, in terms of that uh, personality trait of yours? Yeah, I would, you know, um, and, and, and it's still true, by the way, like I'm miserable right now, Sejo. Um, I'm but, glad to hear that, Ron. That's, that's, only, that's only a little bit true. Um, no, uh, it, it, the, it, you know, the public speaking is, ends up being really important. And it probably doesn't matter if you're, you know, if you're an engineer in the product team, if you make it to the top, you're going to end up doing a lot of public speaking. If you're a salesperson, you probably do a lot of speaking. The closer you get to the top, the bigger the, the audience will be. It's true of every role. And so you need to, you need to do it. Um, and, and you know what, you, you were, we were joking before about, you know, luck. I, I absolutely, and I'm, I still think luck is hugely important because I don't, Yes, I work hard. I'm okay, smart. Plenty of people working very hard, much smarter than me. You know, fortune fortune favors the the prepared, but it doesn't favor all of the prepared evenly. So I I think luck plays a big factor. The one thing that I was deliberate about in my career, probably 
I don't know, 15 years ago, was to say, I need more experience standing up in front of an audience and speaking and getting better at that and getting so that it's not, um, you know, so you're not like super nervous about it, uh, unable to do it. And so, and so that I did. And that, that I would suggest that if you're, if you're wanting to move up, that you speak more publicly and look for those forums. And, uh, and if you're, if you're like me and that's not, it doesn't come naturally to you, uh, it'll, you know, it won't be fun, um, but you'll get more, you'll get more used to it. You'll get better at it. And, and, and it matters. And the thing is the, the, the further you move up, the more you'll use it. Awesome. So I know we're a little over time. Do you have time to take one more question before we wrap up? Yes, it will just uh, it will get increasingly noisy in my house as the construction crews. One last question, uh, and which is about if you are a controller today, right? Yeah. And uh, uh, if you want that breadth and you want to go be an FPNA uh, person, how do you get that opportunity? How do you learn those skills? Because you can't just go get a job as an FPNA person. That's hard. So what would your recommendations be in terms of maybe you know, studying, taking courses or go internally and, and sit down with the FPNA person? Like how did you build some of these breadth skills when you weren't ready yeah. to maybe get a full-time job doing that, right? Yeah, it's, I mean, and there's, there's no question that there's a phenomenon that it's, it's easier to do early, right? It's easier, it is easier to get a little bit of a bunch of different things earlier in your career than it is after you've been doing a thing deep for for 20 years and then move over and part of that is just the thing that we talked about before if i'm the you know global corporate controller um it's uh it's hard to move over to be global head of fpna not ever having having done it before it'd be much easier to go move over and be an analyst you know we and we um uh i definitely try to to facilitate those rotations down in the team it's harder up and i think it's um, there, you know, there are some areas where I would say certification, uh, book learning, or you know, some sort of online learning will be relevant and respected. If you if you uh, are in controlling and want to become an internal auditor, and there's there's a specific uh, discipline around that, there's a certification. You could, I think it'd be it would be respected. Um, some of it is just you've got to do the 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 work. You've got to do the the, the actual experience of doing the work. Um, and so I would try and and sorry for for people uh, my age out there, but I would try to do this while I'm young, while I'm an accountant, to try to rotate through FNA. It's also you also do that just to find out which things you like doing more. Um, and uh, and as as I said, some times uh when i when i run up uh, against the the inability to do that that's when i've moved companies um is is when i've not when i feel like I, the thing i'm doing i've got it down it runs i'm happy to train up somebody else but i don't want to do this thing anymore because i've squeezed all the all the juice out of it in terms of learning um and so then then i've i've moved and like i said sometimes i've moved i moved I've, I've moved down or sideways in order to get the the role and sometimes that's a it's just an organizational phenomenon too you've been the person in charge of x for so long that everybody sees you as the person in charge of x and the best way to 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 to, uh, to move out of that is to is to the only way to, to move out of the company that's that's, a, that's unfortunate you know uh, but but it's but it's the truth so in managing my own career I would think about that for me, in terms of the one thing that I really like is the high potential generalist. And we used to have, I've often given this example with the RevRec accountant. You know, if you RevRec accountants are, are hard to find and they're specialized and they're, you know, they're in great demand. And you can run a RevRec search that goes for nine months while you try to find a new RevRec accountant, or you can hire a smart accountant. And if you hire a smart accountant, it's one thing that's great fun to do and easy to do is to coach somebody from competence to competence. Um, this is much more fun than trying to coach somebody from, from incompetence. Um, but you, you hire a, a smart accountant, have them sit and read contracts with your RevRec team for, for three months. 
they're a RevRec account. It's not, it's not the PhD rocket science, it's, it's RevRec accounting. And so I would much rather hire that. And, and, and the good thing, by the way, is in that they're also still a competent generalist and they can probably be trained for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Um, so that's, a, that's the kind of people I like to populate the organization with. That's awesome. So thank you so much again. I know we took a little bit more time than, than I asked uh, of you, but this was amazing. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. I'm sure a lot of the people who joined us did too. And, uh, uh, and I know this was uh, a long time coming. I, I think for the people who are still sticking around, and thank you that, that uh, you did. I'm sure people had other meetings at 12 that would have dropped off for. Uh, Ron is an investor in Airbase and, and has been a supporter. We should have probably done this a long time ago. I'm happy that we finally uh, you know, got to do this. And uh, you know, Ron, uh, yeah, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you once again. Have a good rest. Thanks a lot, Tejo. I, I enjoyed it. Awesome. Thank you. Bye. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye.